This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. You have heard, as we move along here, you have heard over the last number of days, weeks, months, I suppose, all the stuff going on about North Korea, the threats, the talk, the who's going to bomb who, is Guam going to be obliterated, can they reach the states, can the states reach them, hey, there's going to be missiles flying over Canada with nuclear warheads on them, it's all a very exciting And I say that with my tongue firmly planted in my cheek uh, story that's going on here. There's a lot of stress. There's a lot of tension. This is one of the big sociopolitical stories of the last, I don't know how many years. I mean, we've, we've been in wars, but in those wars, there's never really been talk of nuclear weapons. It's always been a little more... I use the word low-key. That's not the right word, but you know what I'm getting at. Now we've got a nuclear showdown of sorts. And it's starting to have an impact in certain places. The Dow Jones today, the Dow Jones market, was down roughly 200 points. I think it was a little more than that. But it is starting to have an impact. And that decline, by the way, is almost certainly attributable to North Korea. Here to explain why threats of war or these kind of things have an impact on the market, sometimes for better, sometimes for worse. Marvin Ryder of the DeGroote School of Business, who we're always delighted to have explain complicated matters in simple terms. Marvin, thanks for doing this. My pleasure, sir. Are you in any way surprised when you hear what's going on in the world and what's going on with all these threats going back and forth? Are you surprised at all that there's an impact on the markets? Oh, no, not at all. So let's just start with a very simple rule here. The stock markets hate uncertainty. They hate uncertainty. Now, if, let's just say for the sake of argument, Donald Trump had bombed somebody, he might not have that much of an impact because we know for certain what happened, who got hit, what was the loss of life, what have you. Instead, when you have threats, and they're vague threats, and we don't really know what's going on, how big is it going to be? Would it be nuclear weapons? Would it be normal weapons? Would it be soldiers on the ground or simply airstrikes? This uncertainty markets hate. And when they hate uncertainty, they typically do a couple of things. First, you see the stock markets fall in value. Secondly, you see people shift their resources. So gold goes up normally a couple hundred dollars an ounce because regardless of what happens as the outcome of that action, gold is a safe harbor. It will have value continuing after the fact. And then you also see uh, a currency shuffle. So people like the Canadian dollar or currencies like the Canadian dollar, the Australian dollar, they tend to go down a little bit, whereas things like the euro, the British pound, uh, even the yen, even the American dollar, they tend to go up a little bit because those currencies, again, are seen as stable currencies going forward. Now, here's the odd thing, Scott. Uh, After Donald Trump announced, uh, I believe it was on Tuesday evening, that he was going to bring the full fire and fury, this is the key phrase, fire and fury of the United States, and a response the like of which you have never seen before, I thought Wednesday we were going to see pandemonium on the stock markets. I expected to see the stock market fall a thousand points, gold shoot up a couple hundred dollars an ounce, it could even be more. And that didn't happen. Uh, uh, As you say, yesterday we we lost a couple hundred points, and yesterday we lost 30, 40 points. But that's actually a pretty tepid response under the circumstance. And I think it's all because um, people don't trust Donald Trump. They, They don't trust anything he says. Usually, had this been President Obama, had this been George W. Bush, this is the kind of response you would have seen. But because it's Donald Trump, and he says one thing one day and another thing the next day, and then restates it and clarifies what have you, instead, most of his response was met with a big yawn. Uh, and to me, this is absolutely amazing. It really shows you that the world is, is primarily ignoring his t- rhetoric, 
they will react to his actions. And until he actually does something, they're going to be very uh, standoffish about this. But that, as you just described, and you started by saying sometimes actions are less cause for a, a panic on the market. This almost seems like the entire economic world then has been turned on its head. Everything is that's black is white and white is black. Yeah, in a way. So I'll give you an action. If he had ordered a uh, anti-aircraft uh, or a, a big uh, or an aircraft carrier into a, a position so they could attack, even if they didn't do anything, ah, that's an action. That's provocative. That could mean that we're uh, going to start to see bombs flying at any moment. That would have caused a response. But simply saying, "Well, stand back. You're going to see the full." fight and fury, fire and fury of the United States uh, 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 Army, Air Force, etc. That didn't get a reaction. It's again like, make America great again. These are great slogans, but what are you actually going to do about it? And then also when you see everybody else, like Rex Tillerson, who's his Secretary of State, saying, okay, everyone calm down. He landed in Guam. I'm refueling in Guam. Everyone should sleep calm. Nothing's going to happen right away. Well, those mixed messages, the market just doesn't know what to do, so the best thing they can do is ignore it. And that's that's what they're doing, at least in the case of Donald Trump. Let's go through a couple situations that we've seen over history, because these things don't always go the same way. Because I recall when 9-11 happened, the markets went right down the crapper. I mean, they just plummeted after 9-11. And the same when the Gulf War, uh, with with the first George Bush, when uh, with uh, Kuwait, the markets went right down. So the beginning of war, and again, that may be the uncertainty, that caused horrible reactions on the market. Why those ones? Why those particular well, uh, circumstances that w- what was so uncertain about though and, and that sounds obvious maybe I'll finish the question because there have been other examples um, and you go way back the day after Hitler invaded Poland the markets went up and I don't think that's you know that that may be curious or the day after JFK was assassinated the markets went up why does it sometimes cause it to go up and sometimes to go down mm-hmm. well let's let's take 9/11 as an example you're absolutely right the day after 9/11 the markets dropped so much so that, in fact, trading was halted. And uh, there was no trading for four consecutive days because no one really understood what 9-11 was. Today now, we can look back and say these were four isolated planes. uh, I think it was roughly 20 terrorists who brought them down and flew them into buildings, what have you. We knew the scope. But at that time, when the planes were ordered out of the air, no one knew if this was the start of more attacks, whether the next day it would be bridges and the day after that tunnels and There'd be other things flying around. They just, we just didn't have any idea. And that was the uncertainty that caused the problem there. In the case of the Kuwait War uh, with uh, George H.W. Bush, or, or George Number 40, as we like to call it, rather than Bush 42, um, Saddam Hussein was the, the question. Saddam Hussein had said he had all of these weapons of mass destruction. Oh, you know, you attack me, you'd better look out. I'm going to unleash things. And people thought, well, okay, you've, you've, you've stirred the beast here. Now what's he going to do? That war lasted, I believe, you know, the sum total of about three weeks, and most of it was over within 10 days. Uh, the market initially reacted badly because they thought it could go on for months. It could be quite intractable. We know, for instance, that he, uh, he in retreating, uh, set fire to a whole number of oil wells. And again, the market thought, oh, well, here goes oil. Now we're going to see oil prices shoot up. But they were able to put out those fires in less than a year. No one imagined they could do it that quickly. So as 
as more certainty gets into the situation, then the market knows what to do. In the case of the assassination of John F. Kennedy, uh, it was a done deal, and, and already the vice president became the president. There was, wasn't any questions around that. No one thought it was part of a bigger attack on the American government. It was just one lone gunman. There was a surprise that, of course, the gunman, Lee Harvey Oswald, was killed by Jack Ruby the next day. No one saw that coming. But they're just it was a certain act, and it was done in a very short period of time. Those other two had a lot of open-ended questions around them. So we know the markets then have an impact or can be affected and will be impacted one way or another. What about the broader economy? Do we expect that when there's this kind of uncertainty that beyond people who are buying stocks or those kind of things, does it affect the, the broader economy? So, again, I'm going, to give you, I'm going to give you a historical answer, and then I'm going to give you an answer to this specific question. Historically, again, uncertainty causes uh, businesses to pause some of their strategic activity. So if I was thinking about investing in something or thinking about building a building or thinking about doing something, oh, my gosh, there's this big cloud of uncertainty hanging over the heads. Maybe I'll just hold off for a few minutes and, and wait and see, and this could take months. It even take a year or two before I'm prepared to go again. Uh, to give you an Again, example of that, it was truly 10 years ago yesterday that we began the subprime mortgage crisis. Uh, since no one really understood the full extent of it, you saw a lot of companies go into hold, and they went into a hold mode for the better part of four or five years uh, because no one really knew the full extent of the subprime crisis. That's what could happen. Now, the sooner that you understand that uh, where, where these forces are going to play out, who's going to win, who's going to lose, what the damage is, or maybe there will be no damage at all, then companies will go back into action. Because Donald Trump uh, talks the game he talks, but has not delivered much of the action that he, he matches his rhetoric, I think the market for the moment and the economy for the moment will be fine. Just And again, to give you a sense of that, the economy in both Canada and the United States is doing very well at the moment. We've seen uh, the, for the seventh consecutive month, housing starts go up in Canada. Uh, we've not seen a, a big freeze in the market. We've seen a little freeze, but it's just getting sales levels back to normal. We've seen unemployment continuing to go in the right direction. We've seen investment going up, trade going up. And I don't think any of that will be affected by the rhetoric. Now, if Kim Jong-un started to fire some missiles over Canada or to Guam or Hawaii, if Donald Trump chose to start dropping some bombs, all of that could change. But until we, we see a little more definitive action, this is just rhetoric and people are turning a blind eye to it. Last thing before I let you go, and that is, uh, you talked about the dollar. For two things. The dollar, the investment in our dollar, and also we have talked many times on this show about oil prices and how that could be affected. A lot of people are feeling a little better about the Canadian dollar over the last little while as it's got up to 80, a little over 80 cents. Would this uncertainty have a negative impact? Is this going to either through oil or just through the dollar itself drive the value of our currency down or could it raise it? Yeah, well, let's separate those. So, yes, the dollar hit 80 cents. I've just recently come back from nearly a two-week holiday in Poland. And while I was in Poland is when the, the dollar got over 80 cents. And I was actually shocked at that. Uh, I didn't. I thought the market had already priced in all the good things happening in the Canadian economy, and thus I didn't expect that. It's now settled back down into the 78-cent range. And, yes, if we actually see some action and uncertainty, you'd see the Canadian dollar fall some more. At this moment, I think it's in kind of a sweet spot, 78, 79 cents, and it'll likely stay there into the early fall. And then it will really all depend upon the Bank of Canada. If it was to raise interest rates again, as some people are suggesting, around Thanksgiving, we might see another penny go up, uh, might even get over 80 cents. But for the moment, until you see some action, I don't think there'll be anything there. Now, oil, 
because we're talking about North Korea and the United States, and really oil is not involved in that area at all, I think, again, oil is going to continue to fluctuate around $50 a barrel, and I just, I just don't think anything is going to happen unless Kim Jong-un started to fire things off towards the, the Gulf region and some of the Middle Eastern countries, then clearly that would get people scared, uh, oil that might be contaminated with nuclear waste, what have you. But until then, I think we're pretty much stuck where we are with a nice positive trend, and, and really, until they do something, we're just going to ignore the boys. Marvin Ryder. Always appreciate you coming on. Always appreciate you explaining this stuff that uh, that I can't do. Uh, enjoy your evening. Thank you for the time. I will anytime, Scott. That is, uh, there is uncertainty. I mean, look, I, I I think that most people, I really believe that most people expect that what we are seeing right now is a lot of bluster, and that neither side would ever consider using nuclear weapons. And I know people say, "Well, Kim Jong Un is nuts." Well. Maybe, maybe, but even someone who's a little bit cuckoo is going to understand that if you are going to use nuclear weapons on the States, yeah, you may take out a city, which is not something to be sniffing at, but you may take out a city, but you are going to have a thunderstorm of nuclear weapons and other bombs falling on your country. You are going to be obliterated. So what's the end game? And even someone in his position, I think, has to be looking at this saying, wait a second, if I do, I can talk the talk, I can threaten, I can walk around like a peacock and I can puff out my chest and all that stuff. But if I actually did anything, I'm probably going to be blown to smithereens. And even if I'm not, there's going to be nothing left of my country to rule. So what's the upside to this? Unless you, unless he really feels like he wants to go out a hero to those who hate the States. If you look at his track record, look at his father's track record, there is nothing in their background that I've seen that I've ever heard anyone talk about that shares some of those suicide bombing tendencies or beliefs in that I want to, you know, that some of the more extreme jihadists we hear about talk about that you go to the afterlife with a reward for being, for sacrificing yourself. There's nothing that I've seen in Kim Jong-un or his family's background that says they hold to that philosophy that somehow going out in a blaze of glory is a great thing. They are survivors. They have been, they, they fight to keep power and to stay alive. So I just, I, I don't see the likelihood that any of this comes to be, but in the meantime, we have seen in times past in history when talk and threats and discussions about nuclear weapons come into play and you start talking about the possibility of mushroom clouds and cities being evaporated and all that kind of stuff, it, it, it does have an effect for sure. And as Marvin said, uh, if the uncertainty picks up, if it's not just bluster, if people start to actually believe something really could happen, I think you're going to see an impact on the economy. That's what Marvin just explained. And the fact that we are seeing only little impacts right now on the stock markets tells you that I, and probably not you, but I am not alone. There's a lot of people who believe this is just talk. Who, honestly, who really thinks there is someone out there? And I know people can say, well, Kim Jong-un is crazy or Donald Trump is off his rocker or whatever else. Nobody doesn't understand what firing off a nuclear weapon means. Nobody is lacking the ability to understand what that means. It is almost certain demise 
it's not something you do unless you are willing to go down in a blaze of glory. And I don't see any evidence of that. But we'll see. And if you've got a lot of money invested in the stock market, you're hoping that it just stays like this. Just a lot of hot air at this point. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. We're going to talk about the Ticats specifically in a couple of minutes, but I want to bring Rick Zamperin, uh, voice of CHML. You hear him, apparently now you hear him from 6 in the morning until 7.37 in the evening every day of the week now. Rick, you, you, you never go off the air. Uh, my master plan to take over the world is to start with CHML and work my way from there. <laughs> well, it's working out. You're filling in for Scott Thompson all week. You're doing reports. You're now on here. Um, hopefully there's like two or three hours in there that you can sleep at night. But in the meantime, I wanted to ask you about this before we get to the Ticats, because I, I was fascinated when I saw this story. I was on Three Down Nation this week, and they were talking about TV ratings. And the CFL numbers this year are down... 14, 14.5% on TV. And I looked at that and I went, okay, they pointed out that the Blue Jays numbers are also considerably down. I think 20% or something for the Blue Jays. Now the Blue Jays, I understand the team isn't really playing very well right now. They got a lot of injuries. Nobody has that same excitement. It's not the sense you have to tune in every night to watch the Blue Jays. So them going down, I understand. But for the CFL, Rick, this has been a year with a million great games, exciting finishes, close action. I mean, except for sixty to one. Uh, what's going on? Why? How can the numbers possibly be down this year? Good question. It makes me wonder what are people watching. Obviously, if they're not watching the Jays and they're not watching the CFL, they're probably watching either their favorite shows on network TV or cable, or they've gone to the Netflix route. Um, when you look at the CFL product, I mean, year in and year out, we have those exciting games. We've had a bunch of them this season, those nail-biter, right-down-to-the-wire football games. Uh, Winnipeg has been involved in a number of those. Uh, Ottawa has been you know, involved in a number of those games. Uh, the Ticats, you know, not so much. You know, two out of their six games have been you know, really close, uh, last-minute, edge-of-your-seat games. Uh, and I find it very interesting as well in, in this sense is that <clears throat> I think the West is like 15-2 and two against the East, we know that the fan bases out west are, you know, rabid and they're large. You know, Saskatchewan, Edmonton, Calgary, uh, Winnipeg, they all draw a lot of people, not only their stadiums, but on TV as well. And I would have thought that that alone, the success of those teams, would garner more viewers on TV uh, and we'd see a little bit less uh, in the east. Maybe the fact is we're seeing, you know, still that same level in the west, but the fans in the east are really tuning out, you know, because every team in the east is sub-500. Every team in the East has had a real stinker of a ball game. Maybe the fans in the East are just uh, not showing the love to the CFL on TV. Do you worry that this is beyond? This is bigger than simply that, though? Because, I mean, that's certainly, you're absolutely right. That is certainly a possibility that just bad teams on the East end of the country have deterred interest. But, you know, we keep hearing, Rick, that millennials don't watch TV as much. A lot of them don't have TV. They either stream stuff or watch Netflix or whatever else. And cable TV, the old usual way that we've watched it forever, is not what's done. And if they're not even getting the games, how do you reach them? How do you make uh, you know, the next generation fans if they're not even available to see those games on TV? Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's not um, you know, a sole problem of the CFL or any sports league. It is really 
you know, the big cable companies, the big networks, uh, you know, the old-fashioned ABCs and CBSs and NBCs, and up here, you know, we all know the traditional TVs, they're all thinking the same thing. How do we get, how do we reach those millennials who are, you know, on uh, Netflix, or they don't even have cable, they've cut the cord, they don't even know what the cord is, Uh, (laughs) let alone, you know, cutting it, they've never had it. Uh, they're consuming media and 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 video in small snippets. You know, they're not going to stick around for three hours to watch the outcome of a football game when they can see the highlights on their phone or they can get the gist of it on uh, you know their, their tablet. Uh, it's it's a dynamic that's not uh, isolated just to the CFL, but you know, for a league that is very dependent on TV and gate revenue, uh, they, they got to find a way to, to strike a chord with that millennial fan base. Well, what happens if they don't? Because, I mean, it's it's a real challenge. I, I look at this, and I'm looking at the league, and I'm thinking, um, you know, you mentioned other leagues are facing this, but when you're talking like the NFL, for example, you're talking, you know, tens of millions of viewers. Here you're, yeah. I don't want to say you're scraping for little bits and pieces. I mean, we are talking the average audience is about 500,000. It's not insignificant. But you can't afford to drop fifty or sixty thousand fans, or even ten or twenty thousand a year. If that's what the what's, I don't even know what the percentage is. I haven't done it. But th- these are much smaller pies to be shaving pieces out of. What happens if you can't figure this out? You know what? That's going to be uh, an interesting scenario for not only the CFL but for the carrier right now in TSN when they do renegotiate their deal. Because if those numbers continue to go down, <clears throat> you're going to expect the CFL to say we don't want to pay you know as much as mm. we have. In the past, because those numbers are dwindling, uh, you know, it is TV is a great medium to showcase the game. There's no doubt about it. We can see the action, we see the replays, we see the game from different angles. It takes you from, uh, you know, uh, your seat in the stadium uh, to your seat in your living room, and really gives you an in-depth look at, uh, you know, how these guys uh, battle on the field. If if those numbers continue to dwindle. Uh, and they go sub, you know, 400,000, 300,000, uh, there's going to be a lot of money lost. There might be some franchises that are looking around to say, hey, there's only nine of us around. There's not like, you know, 30, 32 in Major League Baseball or the NFL that if you could, if you lose one, you can afford to snatch up another one pretty quick. So uh, it has a much more damaging effect on this league if TV, uh, if TV audiences continue to go somewhere else because uh, that I think that means that, People are not going to the games either because, uh, you know, when you are uh, a child, you know, your first experience to sport is either playing it or watching it on TV or listening to it on the radio or reading about it, you know, in the newspaper. Then you go to your first game because you've heard about it. You maybe ask your father or your mother, hey, let's go to a game. I want to go to a game. And that is your first kind of real life experience with it. But I think that first touch point is through media, TV, radio, newspaper, and whatnot. The, I, I suppose the obvious answer. Uh, or the simplest answer would be, okay, well, if younger people are getting their media through streaming or online and YouTube and that kind of thing, or uh, again, even even streaming entire games, which we've seen some leagues take a stab at. I know the NFL has tried this through Twitter. Mm-hmm. You say, okay, uh, we're going to put the games just online so that people can watch them however they want to watch them. Except I'm looking at that thinking, and it goes back to your point about the carrier, about TSN that's put out a lot of money to carry this thing. I'm not sure TSN is going to be thrilled with the concept of watering down so heavily its TV product and throwing everything for free on the web. Yeah, I, they would not be pleased at all. And, and uh, you know what, the Ticats have done this in the preseason uh, when their game, uh, obviously they have two preseason games, 
One usually is on uh, TSN. The other is uh, is not. At least in recent memory, they've they've only uh, showcased you know a handful of games in the preseason. That untelevised uh, preseason game for the Ticats, they usually put a live stream because it's it's their home game. They could stream it. They have cameras there, uh, and they'll put it on their on their website. Um, I'm I'm not sure if that is a viable answer for a go forward plan because. You're not going to make as much money doing it on your your uh, uh, web page or your Facebook page or your your Twitter feed. I think you need uh, a carrier. I think you need those TV dollars uh, to really carry you through. I mean, if if the CFL did not have TSN, let's give TSN credit. They really did a phenomenal job. They saved it, hundred uh, percent. They yeah, saved yeah, it of, of elevating the league and, in many cases, saving it for for many franchises. If there was no national carrier, uh, this league would not be as heavily publicized, not uh, watched as it has been, and it might be in a very different place today. Well, and if, and we've got to go to something else here, but and if it comes when the contract is over, if the CFL actually goes to Sportsnet, to Rogers to try and get maybe get them to be the carrier. First of all, I think everyone at Rogers will see that as an immediate signal that there is big problem with TSN because you, you just touched on it. TSN and the CFL are attached at the hip here. They've been they TSN saved that league with Friday night football and everything else. If they go to Rogers to try to get this, Rogers knows there's problems and they're not going to start forking out huge amounts of money either. That would be a sign I think to everybody involved. Man, this is this is tr- this is tough. Yeah, you know what? We're not going to see anywhere near the expenditures that Rogers uh paid for the NHL, you know, the the multi-billion no. dollar package. I mean, we're talking uh, 30, 40, 50 million bucks. Uh, you know, tops uh, for for an extension or a new package. I mean, it, it, it's nowhere near uh, the multi-billions that MLB or even the NFL has. So, uh, and, and in saying that, if if the league doesn't have that, uh, man, oh, man, I'd hate to think uh, which teams would fold pretty quick because I think there'd be at least two. Well, there's some teams that also have to pay off stadiums, too. That's right. And if <laughs> and you don't have, have money, revenue, yeah. if you don't have money, anyway, that's a discussion for another day. Hopefully, hopefully, as we get closer to Labor Day, the numbers go up and everyone's happy again. And we say, oh, see, it was just a little blip. Um, what is not necessarily a blip, or it may be a blip, is what's going on down at Tim Horton's field. Uh, as I said off the top, everyone knows this. 0-6, facing Winnipeg, that's really hot right now. Um, is the soap opera getting better? And by that, I mean, is it getting closer to clearing up and uh, things returning to normal? Or is the craziness just getting started down at Tim Hortons Field? <laughs> well, you know what? I would say this. <clears throat> you know, the, the Ticats have not won a single game in 2017, but I think they have won the most interesting franchise award in this season. Because What do you get for that? Well, no. Is that the plaid cup <laughs> instead of the gray cup? What, what, what you, cup do you get for that one? You get a couple of smirks. You get the smirk uh. cup is what you get. <laughs> I mean, they have not only been obliterated 60-1 to 1 in ball games, uh, they've allowed uh, a tremendous amount of yardage uh, on uh, for opposing offenses. Uh, their offense has not clicked at all on all cylinders. Yeah, they've shown some flashes here or there. When your special teams unit is the best part of your team, you know you're in trouble. Uh, you know, this team has made some headlines for all the wrong reasons, for, from Will Hill grabbing an official to being suspended to the Ticats, you know, even uh, today releasing Will Hill, uh, the guy who was uh, suspended back, I think it was week two or three, um, to hiring June Jones, to firing Jeff Reinbold, to having now three kind of offensive-minded guys on the offensive side of the ball in Ken Austin Jones and Steph Potasik. Uh, Philip Lawley being the D coordinator, we're not sure you know what kind of defense he's going to install. I uh, come tomorrow night against Winnipeg. You know this is a team that has made 
headlines uh, for everything but what they've done on the field. And, and it's just, I think, a team that is in not necessarily turmoil, but in uh, a situation where they haven't found their footing. I think they're, they're somewhat treading water right now. A loss tomorrow, I think, would be absolutely debilitating. I don't think that's, uh, that's the way they want to go about uh, entering their uh, their clash against Ottawa being 0-7. Well, and I can't remember, correct me where I'm wrong or fill me in here, I can't remember the last time in mid-season a team went into a game with both a new offensive and a new defensive coordinator, and they don't uh, technically have that, but, I mean, June Jones is, for all intents and purposes, being brought here to be that, and certainly Lolly is the new defensive coordinator. I can't remember the last time that happened. Uh, I can't either, with this team or any team. No, with any team. Yeah, this is uh, this is a strange occurrence because you have a playbook, but now you have two different voices on either side of the ball kind of directing traffic, if you will. And whether it's going to be confusing or not to the players, I'm not sure. I think they, because they still have that same offensive and defensive scheme, they should be okay. But uh, I think a lot of the guys are looking over the shoulder, players included, to think, okay, changes are already starting to be made here midseason. Uh, what's next? Now, what if we lose this ball game? What if we enter Labor Day, you know, zero and eight? Uh, what's going to happen then? Who else is on the, the firing line, if you will? So, I think uh, tomorrow night's game, for a variety of reasons, is is hugely important. Well, not only that, and, and I, I absolutely agree with you, but this is also really, if you look at what is where they've been and where they're going, this is unquestionably the easy easiest stretch of their schedule. they got Winnipeg, and again, not a bad team in Winnipeg for sure, but Winnipeg, Ottawa, which is really struggling this year, a bye, Toronto, which just has lost Ricky Ray for we don't know how long, Ottawa again, and then Saskatchewan, the last place team in the West. Um, you've got to think that for them to have a real chance at making a run to the playoffs, what, three wins out of that five games? Yeah, I think so. And then, you know, they, they still haven't played Montreal up until that point either. So, I mean, this is this is the time of the season. They've they've played a bunch of the Western teams up until this point. We know what the records are of those teams out West. They're very impressive. Another one's coming to town in Winnipeg tomorrow. They've, they've played well, although, you know, four of their six games have been real squeakers. Uh, so tomorrow night, I think, could be a toss-up either way. But I think if they don't make hay in these next three, four, five games – uh, man, they're in trouble. They they can't enter the last half of their season, uh, you know, five or six games under 500. They got to start winning more than they lose. And, and three out of the next five, I think, would help. Uh, I think four out of the next five mm. would be even better. But uh, uh, that might be a tall order. Well, the the interesting thing to me, Rick, is that everyone keeps saying, "Well, look, they've had to play the West, and the West is really good this year," mm. and that explains part of the Ticat schedule. Well, part of the reason the West is really good, perhaps, is because they've had to play the Ticats. <laughs> which you know, which could be another part of this. We don't, we still don't know, and we're going to start finding out. Like Winnipeg, to me, is a yet yeah, they're in the West, and yeah, they're a pretty good team, but they are a middle of the pack. They're not a bottom team, but they're not one of the super elite teams. This is a beatable team for the Hamilton Tiger Cats, and if they don't win this one, I agree with you. Um, this this becomes big problems because this is one of those games. I think you look at and you say they've they've got to take this one just to get something going. Well, I see, you know, going into tomorrow, this, this first six-game stretch is almost a microcosm of their 60-1 to loss in Calgary because uh, it started out horribly in Calgary. They showed no fight. It snowballed, and it turned into uh, really a circus at the end of the day. I mean, they got their doors blown off and then some. They got obliterated. Uh, this six-game stretch, not necessarily each and every game, but I think it has snowballed on them. One loss is translated into another, one bad play to another, you know, penalties, injuries. It is all kind of snowballed, you know, coaching changes, 
snowballed into what has become really a, a throwaway first third of the season, and it's now going to be up to them over this next stretch to see if they can get back in. Uh, just one little correction, not tomorrow. Saturday is the game against Saturday, Winnipeg, yeah. and I'm just telling you that because you are doing the fifth quarter after the game, and I don't want you sitting here tomorrow night at about 10.30 wondering why nobody is calling you to yeah. talk about the game. That would be very awkward. Very much so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Saturday night game is uh, 7.30, which means Rick will be on the air for the fifth quarter around 10.30, quarter to 11, something in there. Yeah. Uh, give him a call. Fifth quarter this year has been uh, very entertaining. I'm sure it will be no different this Saturday. Rick, thanks for doing this. Anytime. Rick Zamprin, host of the fifth quarter after every Hamilton Tiger Cats game. He will be on the air this Saturday. Give him a call or give him a listen. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. People, you probably heard if you've been listening to the news today that once again there is a blockade on Argyle Street in Caledonia. Now, if this sounds at all familiar to you, it's because it is familiar. It was what, about 10 years ago that there was at the Douglas Creek Estates that there was the blockade and it went on for months and months and it was the subject of books and it was the subject of commissions and it was the subject of great criticism particularly of how the Ontario Provincial Police handled or didn't handle the situation. And at that time, back when this was going on, there was a guy who, you know who he is, he used to have a show at on this station. He's had many shows on this station. He's the executive producer of this show, as it turns out. But he used to do a morning show at the time, and Jamie West spent an awful lot of hours talking about the Caledonia thing, not just because he was the host of a show, but also, as it turns out, to his... Bad luck, I suppose. Uh, he was living in Caledonia at the time. Uh, Mr. West joins me now. And uh, Jamie, I, I can't imagine when you hear there's another blockade out on Argyle uh, Street by the Douglas Creek Estates that it warms the cockles of your heart. No, Scott, uh, <laughs> it, uh, it doesn't do that. It uh, brings back uh, a lot of uh, unhappy memories of uh, my time in Caledonia, actually. And, and uh a lot of great concern uh, that here we go again, perhaps. I would think that that would, I certainly haven't done a scientific poll of everybody living in Caledonia, but I bet you that there's an awful lot of people who are thinking or saying that right now, that, oh man, please don't let this be here we go again. Well, I would imagine that that's the case. I mean, the town, the town did get on with it to some extent after the DCE uh, blockades and the protests, uh, which you accurately said happened about, well, just over 10 years ago, 2006, April of 2006 was when, when that all kicked up. But um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a, it's funny thing. Um, When I think back to the, to to that time, my opinion hasn't changed about the effectiveness of this kind of protest. It's, it's it's a, it's a dumb idea by the Haudenosaunee to to do this. It's just dumb. Um, yeah, they get a lot of attention, but they don't get any. They don't win any friends in their in their fight, which in fact may be just. I mean, we don't know the facts of the matter around this Birch thing. That's what lawyers are for. That's what process is for. Um, that's what they need to be doing. They need to be uh, fighting with lawyers and they need to be doing proper media relations or communications work on it. Um, but even if, the, even if the level of frustration is so high that they feel the process is not working, mm-hmm. my thought on this, though, is, Jamie, I'm, 
I'm of the opinion, I would bet you money that there is nobody in Caledonia right now who whose pen, whose hand was holding a pen that signed one of the treaties. And none of their parents are living in Caledonia who signed those treaties. And none of their grandparents are the people who signed those treaties. So this is merely inconveniencing and upsetting people of a particular town who really don't have anything to do with this. If you want, if you have a grievance with the government, and if you really want to make a protest, take your protest to the streets, to the the lawn of Queens Park or block a street by Queens Park. Do something where the government exists rather than just with the people in your town who don't have anything to do with this. Well, and and these, and all of those arguments you make are are valid and they're the same ones that, that, you know, many people were making, including talk show hosts on the air back in 2006, 2007 and on. Um, a- absolutely right. That's exactly what, what you should, should be doing. Um, but they're not doing it. And it doesn't help that you've got what I call a, a culture out in Caledonia that is quietly, I think, racist. I, I think it, it's quietly racist. I don't think there's overt racism there, but I, there's a din of um, uh, looking downedness, if you will, at the people that uh, are on the Six Nations, not by everyone out there, but by a large number of people. And that's what I kind of smelled in the air when I lived out there, and it made me a little uncomfortable as a non-Indigenous person um, living out there, uh, that this culture existed. And you may say to yourself, well, you know, where was the evidence of that? The, the evidence to me was in the fact that the local townspeople would gather on Argyle Street with their lawn chairs on a Friday night with their dogs, with their grandchildren, with their children, to watch the events unfold or not unfold on Argyle Street at the blockades as though it was a form of entertainment in the town. And I found that so distasteful when I lived there. To watch this anticipated kind of um, circus atmosphere take place out there, I I likened it to the pitchforks and burning crowd. It, It was terrible. And then you combine it with feckless law enforcement and you had just a just an absolutely surreal kind of existence up there well let's talk about that part for a second because this is this i want to read you two things i want to read you these are two stories that were in they're on the spec.com right now people can go and read them right now the first story comes to us from it's about the opp and it's because there was a group of motorcyclists that blocked part of the 401 it's a large group that gathered and they kind of did a blockade on the 409, 401, 403, QEW, Don Valley Parkway, and the Gardner. It was a big moving thing. Uh, not only, here's a quote from, um, from the OPP. Not only were they driving dangerously and aggressively at some times, they came on a dead stop on the highway causing congestion, chaos, frustration for other motorists and really putting everyone at risk. Okay, there's the first part. But then... There is no place for groups like this to hijack our highways that are used for commerce, for transportation, for a shared community of drivers that are trying to get around 
the GTA, especially on a long weekend. This will not be tolerated. That is, especially that second part, we are not going to allow a group to block the roads and inconvenience people. It's not going to be tolerated. Today's story from the OPP asking about what they're going to do for the blockade now on Argyle Street. Our only role is to maintain public safety. And this, I think, Back Jamie, the if there's same old, same if old. this is if there's one thing that drove, as I understood it, when you were doing your show, everybody I heard talk about it, everyone out in Caledonia who had their frustrations, the thing that made people crazy was that the police force refused to do anything about this, or at least yeah. that was the impression. They refused to do anything. Christy Blatchford wrote a book about this, and if this is and if this is what's going to happen again. If this if nothing has been learned, if this is actually the the, ac- the action or non-action that's going to be taken, this is going to make people crazy all over again. Yeah, the book that Blatchford wrote is called Helpless. I don't get any cut of sales, but anybody that's interested in this topic should read that book um, because it deals very accurately with uh, the whole OPP situation. So yeah, to your to your point, um, it, it it was the thing that drove people crazy. We felt. Uh, out there like we had no no law enforcement that it was you know the wild wild west it was crazy and but we had lots of cops around the place was a beehive of cops nothing but cops in fact they they nicknamed it Cashedonia because there were cops OPP cruisers from all over the province marked like Bracebridge and Pembroke and you know all of these places just zipping around the town, um, collecting money, and nobody enforcing any law. You're talking it about was, overtime, not actually getting donations. Yeah, no. I, yeah. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Just to clarify. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> um, just, a, just a joke, like watching taxpayers' money wasted over and over and over again, and and... Yeah, no law enforcement at all. It's, and and, and to be clear, asinine. and to be clear, uh, and, and I've always said this, and you may agree or you may disagree, I don't blame, I don't cast any of the blame at all on the officers who were on the ground who were there. This was th- These were on orders that were handed down not to do anything. If the officers on the ground had their way, I'm sure they would have taken some kind of action, most of them. They were well, not they, permitted. Well, I agreed. And, you know, um, yeah, the, the orders were coming... I believe even higher than the commissioner's office. Like they were coming from much higher. They were coming from the government in power at the time, which was McGinty's government. So what and happens now? What happens now? If if this this could, we don't know. This just started today, and we're not going to raise this thing to alarm level nine. We're not going to go into uh, you know DEFCON four here. But if this this thing could easily fritter out and be gone in a day or two, we don't know. But if this thing starts to extend. What happens? I think what happens is you'll, you'll see an, an exact repeat of what you saw with the Douglas Creek Estates matter. You'll just see more and more professional um, protesters arrive from other areas of the country and, and of this province uh, showing up. You'll see more guys uh, wearing masks and waving the Mohawk warrior flag and and... That's, you're just going to see more of the same. I mean, why would they do anything differently, Scott? I mean, they, it, it, it worked for them the first time. They, they, kept, they kept everybody off the DCE. The government paid the Hennings, 
some money, put those guys through hell, and uh, eventually they got some money, but they those guys went through hell um, just to, to win. One guy, you know, lost his home entirely. Um, they're going to just do the same thing because that's what they always do, and the same thing's going to, to happen again. But surely lessons have been learned. Surely some lessons have been learned in this. I can't believe we could actually have a repeat. And maybe I'm just being naive, but I can't believe we could go down, pardon the pun, the same road again and have the exact same outcome and the same way of dealing with it. I would hope that that wouldn't happen, but I don't believe that it will be any different because, you know, political correctness and fear of racial backlash is going to rule the day over the rule of law. And it sh- that shouldn't be the case. If you break the law, I don't care what color your skin is, what your cultural background is or religion, you break the law, you, the law gets enforced and you are penalized accordingly. And that applies to everybody else too. You know, the last time I checked, you know, the, the people, the, the protesters um, weren't allowed to break other laws so why do they feel they're entitled to break this one? Assuming, you know I mean? assuming that most of the people who live in the area, unlike you, because you did move away eventually, you're now living in town here, but assuming most of the people there are the same people who lived there before, and you know a lot of those people because you lived with them, you talked with them, what do you think their level of confidence in the policing and in what will happen would be right now? Zero. Absolutely zero. They, they would have zero confidence. Until they see something different. That's right. That's exactly right. And those good people deserve to have the laws of the land enforced in their community. Their community has tried and successfully, I think, has gotten on with it after the BCE thing. They don't want to stop that momentum. I mean, there's, you know, there's a huge... residential development uh, going on out there finally a decade later um that's happening there's lots of good things happening out that way they need that momentum to continue but law enforcement's got to step up and shut it down it's that simple yeah you know what even if you're going to give it a couple days to see if they run out of steam and if they decide they can be you know they can walk away and feel like somehow they've saved face or made their point and then if not Again, we're, we are if that if it extends, Jamie, we are going to see what if any lessons were learned from the last time. And again, I would hope that after going through it and then having ten years, almost ten years, because by the time it was done, it's probably a little less than ten. You've had almost a decade to study it, learn from it, realize what mistakes were made or what mistakes weren't made. I would hope that there is something that they learned that they know how to do better this time. I would hope. You would hope. I mean, you know, again, um, you've got all of that land that's known as the DCE, the wasteland. Go and, you know, bring in a whole bunch of people and a, and a bunch of loud music and, and go nuts out there and make a spectacle and have media come and cover that. And while you're at it, like you said, march on Queen's Park. Uh, march on Parliament Hill if you want. Stage protests all over communities all over uh, Ontario. You know, do, you know, use your heads, you know, pissing people off by blocking the main road in town is not how you win friends and influence people. It's, it's, it's bullying, disgusting behavior that is going to 
be met with tremendous disdain by your neighbors. That Those are the people in Caledonia. They're the same people you play lacrosse with. They're the same people you play hockey with and soccer with and eat in restaurants with. You know, like, come on. It doesn't make any sense. It's a dumb idea that's usually egged on by dumb leaders. That's my opinion. Jamie West, always appreciate the time, sir. Thanks for doing this. Always a pleasure, Scott. Thank you. I I got I got to echo. Well, Jamie said a lot of smart things there, but particularly what we talked about and what he reiterated. I don't believe that the people who live in Caledonia, the people who live in Caledonia, are at the root of the grievances here. I don't believe that there are people in Caledonia who signed treaties, signed arrangements, signed agreements. It's not the people of the town who should be inconvenienced or subject to the protest or having their streets closed. If there is a grievance, and and look, there is lots of time, and we've had lots of discussions, and we will have lots of discussions about the grievances. We certainly, in the time we have today, we don't have time to go into that. that that's a topic for another day. And I, there are grievances. Whether you agree with the grievances or not is a different issue. But there are certainly are grievances. We know lots about them. But those are with levels of government. And so if a protest is going to be made, to me, it seems the protest should be directed at the government, not at the people. That's That, to me, is where... This goes from being something where you say, you know, the people have a right to protest. In our country, in our democracy, you have a right to express yourself. You have a right to gather and to protest in in various ways. But it seems here the protest is being directed at people that have no power and no responsibility for what's going on. And it's not being delivered at the people who can affect change and who are behind some of these decisions. And so I'm, I'm not going to sit here and say, look, if you are an indigenous person who is, dis, is, is affected, disaffected, upset, angry with the way that you believe you've been treated, I'm not going to tell you that you should not have a grievance. I'm not going to tell you that you're wrong, that you are not allowed to feel the way you do. What I'm saying is, I don't think that the people who drive up and down Argyle Street, who are living in Caledonia, who have moved to the town in the last five years or 10 years or lived there all their life, I don't believe they are the root of your problem. I don't think they're the people who are at the, at the cause of the problem. It's the government. It's layers of government. They're the ones. They're the places where you should be holding the protest. We'll see. This thing... This thing could fritter out in the next few days, or it could start to drag along. We will find out. But I, I, I tell you, if it starts to drag out, there are going to be an awful lot of people from across this country watching to see what, if anything, is done differently from the last time. And if the OPP do things exactly the same way as last time, there's going to be an awful lot of people who are going to be an another group of people who are going to be awfully upset and angry and disaffected and enraged with what's going on. Now you're going to have two groups that feel like they're being hard done by. Different stories, different backgrounds, 
But if you live in Caledonia and this happens to you a second time and this thing drags out for a long, long, long time and becomes an ongoing thing, you're also probably going to feel like you're not getting a fair shake. But this will be something we will talk about, I'm sure, if it drags on much in the days and weeks to come. We will see. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900. AM 900 CHML. Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the great white north and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.